Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging that we are here today on the lands of the Ghana people, and I'd like to pay my deep respect to their elders, to the elders today, Uncle Lewis, who is here this morning, welcoming us onto Ghana country, to all of the hard work that the elders do, bringing the younger people up to be the elders of the future. My name is Nikki Cumpston, and I'm the artistic director of Tanandi, and I'm also the curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. It is my absolute honour and great pleasure to introduce to you this wonderful exhibition, Buna Bunanga, and to introduce our speakers this afternoon. And it's ter absolutely terrific to see so many people here who are interested in hearing about this absolutely incredibly mind-blowing <laughs> history that has been sleeping. <laughs> so I'd like to welcome Jonathan Jones, who has curated and brought this together. Jonathan is a Wiradjuri Gamilaroi artist and curator and researcher. And thank you for the research that you do and all the work that you do to bring this information to our attention. And Bill Gamage, who's the writer and author of The Biggest Estate on Earth and, and um, who's, you know, through these works of art that you see, he will be speaking to his research. And my very dear sister, Zena Cumpston, who's worked and written some of the um, wall texts from a women's perspective. Um, absolutely thrilled to be here. Please join me in welcoming them and making them feel welcome. Um, good, good morning, everyone. Um, obviously, I'd like to start by acknowledging that we're on Ghana country, um, but also um, thank Nikki and Gloria and the team here because what we're um, looking at here, um, I'm hoping it looks really simple and seamless and easy, but it is a very, very complex, complex project bringing together collections from right across um, a number of institutions looking at research from a number of different sources, um, also drawing on a number of different knowledge systems and ways of presenting that. Um, and this is a project which has really tried to, I guess, engage with Aboriginal ways of learning. Um, so this is an extraordinary layered exhibition. Um, people can come in here and probably spend a whole day or they could come in here and spend two minutes, um, but hopefully go away with something. And so this is a project which has taken a huge team um, and obviously in particular um, Gloria uh, who has worked you know, tirelessly on this project and I really, I can't even spot her, but um, she's somewhere here. There you are, thank you, you're the best. Um, so this project really um, is buna bunana, which is um, a, a Wiradjuri word, um, and it's a Wiradjuri word which means um, an, an abundance. Um, it's an abundance, a wealth, a bounty. Um, this idea that our country was alive, that our country was, you know, full of, of goodness. Um, and yet when we think about Aboriginal culture, an abundance and wealth is not what we're described as. 
and I guess I was, you know, this project and, you know, you read the extraordinary work of people who tell us this story about um, how abundant our country was. You listen to our elders about how abundant our country is, but it's not how we're brought up. Um, and so this uh, project is really about celebrating that abundance, that buna bunana. Um, interestingly enough, though, I work with Uncle Stan Grant, who you can hear is um, doing these extraordinary um, soundscapes that move through the space. Uh, and buna bunana is a word we chose because the word is actually connected to fire. It's a word that's connected to buna, which is a, a word that's connected to ashes and the way that ashes sit in the country and help promote new growth and help promote that abundance. Um, so it's a very particular word around how country provides things for us. Um, so the other little bit of housekeeping is, of course, the, the other person that we're missing from the team is um, Uncle Bruce Pascoe, um, and he sent his deepest, deepest apologies for not being here. Um, he's off filming Dark Emu. Um, and making an extraordinary um, documentary of that research that um, hopefully everyone's read. I should let, we should just do a check. I love this as a check. How many people have read Dark Emu? Hands up. There we go. This is great. Oh, my God. Out you go. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, and so, and how many people have read The Greatest Estate? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Great. We're making some traction. We're making some headway in this world and starting to understand um, the shifts that are needing to occur. So this project was really about bringing some of those stories together. Um, and some of the stories also that I was, have been really grateful to bring to the table are also the, some of the objects. Um, so some of the objects which are really extraordinary um, are the shovels. Um, these are shovels which appear in the museum archive. They are within our collections. Um, they're within our language. We know what they're called. Um, and yet they've been left out of the national dialogue. Um, I'd also encourage you to have a look at what people have come to know as Bogan River picks. They're extraordinary picks, um, I think, in the, the, the second and third cabinet. Um, they're these very large picks which, um, again, are sitting within the museum archive that no one has analysed. Um, and they're picks which we've been looking at with a number of different archaeologists. They're of such an enormous weight. Um, they have hafting marks. Um, so they had to be swung, but they're too heavy to be swung like a hammer. Um, so perhaps they're being swung um, on the ground using gravity. The pick is such a perfectly formed point. What do we use, like, how do we create such a perfectly formed point? You're not smashing into rock with a, with a tip like that. Um, you know, so there's these ideas of people tilling the earth with these objects. And this is just another moment of where all this information sitting in our archives and waiting for people to wake that knowledge up um, and bring it back to our attention. Um, so those picks haven't been um, worked on. Um, the shovels haven't been worked on. But these are just some of the ideas that we need to start thinking about to better understand our country. Um, I might hand it over to Bill to talk about some of those um, ideas through these extraordinary archives. But one thing, too, that I think is really important for us as Southeast people that I think 
I always like reminding us all is um, we've had such extraordinary damage in the southeast. You know, Victoria, New South Wales, and Tasmania just had unimaginable um, destruction go through our communities. Um, and Lynn Onnes, um, an extraordinary artist from the southeast, once said that he was from the Bowerbird School of Art that he would pick little bits of information up and put them together. And I sometimes feel that as the one thing we do really, really well in the southeast is we find these little fragments of information, we go through the archive, we talk to our elders, we look at country, and we pull it together to make something like this little bower that we're looking at here um, to start telling stories again. So, and I, I think that's a really important thing to remember about how this has been put together. So, Oh, that's right. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. Um, and I note with regret that we don't know the name of the actual Gowana family who looked after the ground that we're on now. A family was the key unit for looking after country. Uh, so really when you're uh, recognising a language group, you're sort of missing the, the key part of how detailed and precise and limited was the careful management of country. And I say that because it helps uh, when you're looking at the pictures, you're looking at very limited country there and you're looking at the work of a particular family probably and, uh, and you can see straight away that they must have worked very hard with a great deal of local knowledge and a great deal of pre precision. So my preference is always to regret the name of the particular family whose ground we're on. I also come from Radri country. Um, the buggers are everywhere, believe me. <laughs> Run into them. And I, I just had a thought about the, the shovels that are on the walls. If you look at this one and the, some behind you, they strike me as, as uh, very fine in the handle. You wouldn't be actually turning much soil, much heavy soil, with something with such a, a delicate uh, handle, it seems to me, more likely you'd use this, a digging stick. And so that led me to wonder what those might be about. And my guess is they might have been for winnowing, winnowing seed, which you shovel up into the air and let the wind take the husk away, as is common all over the world. That in itself would be proof of... Uh, Aboriginal agriculture, because if you're winnowing seed, clearly you're growing it and harvesting and eating it. Uh, see, what, see what you think. Um, it's just a thought I have, but it is also a comment that we don't really know. We don't really know what they were used for. So we've got so much more to find out. And, uh, but uh, I've been asked to talk about uh, the, the paintings, the pictures, and uh, most of the pictures we can't see in this audience. We've just, just got a few in the front that I can reach. And this is, this is the nearest, so I'll talk about that and ask you if you're interested in the kinds of things I'm saying to go and look at it yourself. This is uh, a painting done on what became uh, Bathurst. And it was done uh, by the first group of whitefellas to come and, and settle or to establish the camp of Bathurst. And you can see in the uh, centre of the picture the European camp. But what I 
I tend to be, always be interested in is the landscape, not, not the whitefellas. The, thing, the key thing about the whitefellas is to make sure that they haven't been there long enough to actually change what you're seeing in the landscape. So whatever's there is uh, uh, an Aboriginal landscape. How can I be confident about this? Because the purpose of the official photographers who went on, uh, official artists who went on these exp expeditions is to be the photographers of their age, to record what they saw. Uh, they couldn't embellish it too much, unlike some of the later artists, because they're in effect writing a visual report of the country. And certainly that's the case with the people here. And if you look at uh, this, you've got in the foreground uh, a grass. It's clearly a tussock grass, if you have a look at it. Uh, it's done in tussocks. It's uh, um, dead or dying. Now remember, this is April. And so straight away, you know that it's an Australian grass, even if you didn't know that this was uh, uh, an Aboriginal landscape, as I've said. It's an Australian grass because many of the perennials in Australia uh, flourish over the summer and then they mature or head drop seed in April or May. And this is, painting is done in April, April, May. So this is a, a mature grass uh, and a tremendous advantage in the Australian environment because what it means is green over the summer. And that means it's shielding, protecting water, shielding the ground from drought, flourishing uh, when most imported grasses uh, for stock or for kangaroos are dead and therefore very little help. So what you've got is an environment in Australia where there's good feed for uh, grazing animals like kangaroos over the most risky time for animals in the heat of summer. And you can see that there. Um, when you look more closely, you can see that it's not just one grass field. There are lanes of grass. It's almost as though people have planted the seed, left the space, planted another row of seed, and planted another row of seed. And that's quite remarkable, quite remarkable to go to that kind of trouble, presumably to dig the soil or at least loosen the soil and spread the grass. Once you've done that, you can manage it with fire. Kangaroo grass, for example, you could burn every three years and it'll flourish and come back. But I've got a puzzle. That is not how kangaroo grass grows now. It's how the uh, stalks grow. If you look at the back of the room, you can see that the heads of seed shoot up like that. But the actual grass is a tussock grass which spreads out on the ground. So that leaves two options. Either this is uh, like a, a rice grass or a wheat grass, uh, or that kangaroo grass is so dense and so rich that we haven't seen any examples of that today. And I suspect it's the latter. We're looking at kangaroo grass that's cultivated far more intensively and effectively than we can manage it. Even botanic gardens can't grow kangaroo grass like that. I say it's probably kangaroo grass because it's April, because it's mature, because it was the most common grass. In fact, 
If you ask me what Australia, the colour of Australia was like in 1788, I'd say it was the colour of the mature kangaroo grass that you can see up the back. It's tan. The colour of Australia now in summer is white, isn't it? Usually uh, wild oats, uh, a dead grass or a dead crop, which is a creamy yellow. Uh, so white fellas change the colour of Australia as well as uh, the face of the vegetation. If you look at on the other side of the creek, you see more a landscape managed for animals than for plants. And that's not surprising because by and large, in this sort of country, around Bathurst, people didn't eat grain. They didn't need to. The most popular kinds of, of plant food were yams, the various kinds of yams. And by and large in Australia, wherever yams could grow, that's around the higher rainfall areas and in pockets in the desert, around springs and so on, wherever they could grow, people didn't eat grain or they ate a very little bit of grain. So you're, you're really looking here at an auxiliary crop, uh, a sort of a possible standby in times of drought and so on, and yams would have been the main vegetable food. On the other side, you've got the kind of uh, layout which is attractive to grazing animals. Uh, along the line between the grass and the trees in the background, you've got an edge. Edges are particularly prolific places. They, you get more sun from the grass, more rain from the edge of the trees, and so that's a prolific place for various animals. And that's the kind of place that Aboriginal people would make by increasing the number of edges, keep creating clearings and various other ways, increase the number of edges, lure or attract uh, grazing animals like kangaroos. In the front, you've got a much more open uh, area. Of course, kangaroos will use it, but they, that's very long grass, quite long grass. So almost certainly it's not for kangaroos. I guess it would be for something like emus. And the idea is you wouldn't use it at this stage, but uh, shortly you would burn it or burn a patch, uh, quite a large patch in the case of emus, and that would provide the, uh, the pickings and so on that emus like. So you've got country for grain, then water, and then emus, and then kangaroos and other grazing animals. And all that is told, told to us about Aboriginal people by a, a white artist who had not a clue what he was showing us. Thanks. Um, and we were just talking before, my, my family comes from Bathurst. That's where my family's from. Um, and of course, my elders constantly remind me to whenever I have the opportunity to tell the story that, of course, when whitefellas came over, they saw these fields and, you, and the texts are here. We've included the words of those, those first colonists to come over the mountains. They don't have the words to describe how beautiful our country is. Those beautiful Bathurst plains, those rolling hills of just amazing grasses, they, um, they, they can't describe how wonderful um, the scenery is. But of course, very, very quickly, um, things 
go bad. Um, and it's not long that our, our people go from buna bunana, having an abundance, to scratching around and being forced to steal food from the edges of society. And in fact, it's in Kelso, on the other side of the Macquarie, the Warmbull River, um, that our people are caught stealing potatoes. They're fired upon and killed, and what's known as the Bathurst Wars start from that moment. Um, martial law is declared against my people, um, and uh, convicts uh, are sent out, um, the, the, the military is sent out against Wiradjuri people and an enormous devastation is kind of reached, wreaked in that region, um, which we've never recovered from. Um, and our elders will always remind us that um, in that process, um, we, it, was, it was a pretty fierce campaign. There was um, some extraordinary moments. We were led by a number of leaders, including one person that's probably the most well-known, Windradine. Um, but once our women and children were being targeted, um, we had to call that campaign off. Um, so we're very proud of the fact that no women, no white women and children were ever harmed in that war. Um, but of course our women and children were, were massacred um, and our elders, uh, Windradine walked into Sydney um, with the word peace written on his hat um, to speak and to declare peace um, with Governor Brisbane. So, so these grains, this agriculture, this knowledge was fought over. You know, blood was spilt for these fields. Blood was spilt for these grains. Um, and, and these images are really potent images um, for people to look at. Um, on that note, sorry, that's a really heavy note, I'll leave it on. Um, did you want to um, talk about maybe um, yams and the use of yams and some of those yams that we were, we were lucky enough to capture and how they kind of appear in some of the images? Um, yeah, I guess... I'm really, really interested in Murnong and a lot of people are really interested in yams and Murnong. Um, the main thing for me is I feel that as Aboriginal people we're often told what we shouldn't be eating, but no one really thinks about the fact that um, the foods that we've eaten since the beginning of time aren't around for us to eat anymore. And the reason why I really started getting interested in Murnong is I just started thinking about um, our foodways and how that's going to play out into the future with climate change and what's happening um, to our environment in general. Um, and things like Murnong are really important for us, especially because they're really high in something called inulin. And that, I'm not a doctor, so I won't go into too much detail, and I know I don't understand it the way that I should, but I know that inulin, um, it actually regulates your blood sugars. And Murnong, we know from all of the historical records, was something that we were eating all the time. And um, so many mounds have been found by archaeologists where we know that they were baking Murnong in those mounds. And, Across the southeast, those yams are a really important food. Um, not, you know, the only important food, but I just think uh, we need to find a way to reintroduce those these foods because they're what's supposed to be grown here, and they're also medicine for country. A lot of our grasses and the foods that have been our staple foods for a really long time actually um, sequester carbon and do all sorts of things that we need to give back to country. The foods that we're growing at the moment are taking all the time. Fertilisers are stripping um, our mother and it's, it's not, it can't keep going the way that it is at the moment. So, yeah, the, I guess what I'm writing about at the moment with my work as a researcher is um, thinking about future foods and um, 
what we as Aboriginal people should actually have access to, like this is, needs to be a form of reparation, not just for us, but for country. We need to have access to our foods and in fact, everyone would really benefit. Um, things like kangaroo grass have so much more nutritional value as a bread than the stuff that we eat as bread today. We know that we've been making it for more than 30,000 years. Hardly anyone knows that Aboriginal people are the first bread makers. How can that not be something that we're all really, really proud of as you know, all Australians? Um, and kangaroo grass is also climate tolerant. It grows all over Australia and it can deal with quite a lot of fluctuation in terms of it being able to survive. Most of the staple grains that we have now in our diet, more than 50% of them are not from here and they're not going to be okay when we go up by 1.5 or 2 degrees. So actually, it's wonderful that things like this exhibition are happening and um, Uncle Bill's book and Uncle Bruce's book, people are starting to open their minds up and it's just weird that these really, really old stories are suddenly new again, but um, it's good that everyone's so interested because it's going to be a big part of us getting through the challenges we're facing in terms of our environment is really reinvigorating um, our ways of, of our food ways. And I guess one of the things, this will be a really interesting, oh, is that working? Yeah, there we go. One of the interesting things to test is um, who thinks that they can recognise kangaroo grass here? Put your hand up. Yeah? <laughs> Nikki doesn't count. Um, and who thinks that they would recognise or know or have ever seen Murnong growing? Wow. That's extraordinary. So this is a food, these are foods that our people lived on for thousands of generations. These are foods that, you know, um, as some people, you've, everyone's read Bruce's book, but we've all read that account of, you know, when they're dragging the wagons through the fields, so they're churning up bushels of myrnong. This is, you know, this is a food source that no one remembers or could see. So, so, I mean, simply that idea that you were talking about, that idea of recognising these things and understanding them and building them back into our lives is, yeah, exactly what we were keen to do with the wallpaper. So, for all of you now, this is what Murnong looks like. <laughs> There's a number of different varieties. It's, it's leave, it leaves, its leaves can go very skinny and not pointy, um, but it can also go even more serrated and get even more toothy. Um, it has this beautiful, we've over-exaggerated the, the, the little flower, but the little flower's like a little daisy. Um, and then in between the little white things is when the flower becomes a seed, and the seed head um, produces a ball of seed, like a, like a, like a daisy, um, and, 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 and self-seeds again. Um, so this is one of those really important plants. Um, and then bordered across the entire image, is kangaroo, the seeds of the kangaroo grass. So this really important, one of the largest grains um, that we had, which is yeah, bordering across the entire picture here, framing our vision, trying to reimagine how we understand these images, how we understand these objects, and how we understand ourselves and see ourselves in them. Did you want to talk about the sort of maybe just point to it, the, oh, yeah, or this yeah, one? I can't. I guess. Can see that one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let, Whichever one. Well, I just thought we were building on Murnong, so maybe... Okay, yeah. Yeah? Did you want to head over and we we'll stay here? Or just oh, poach? No, it was... Okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry. It'd take me more time when I got to get over there. But 
Just on Murnong, we know that it was uh, cultivated very extensively in, in the um, southwest of Victoria, for example. There are early European accounts of women using digging sticks to dig up the ground to, for Murnong. It must be cultivated. It doesn't do very well if you don't cultivate the ground. So rich and extensive fields of Murnong uh, show Aboriginal women uh, cultivating. And I mentioned the southwest of Victoria because it has a, a puzzle. What's happened to Murnong is that the uh, stock, uh, love it. Sheep, cattle, kangaroos, they all love Murnong uh, and they'll eat it out, which is what uh, European uh, stock did. But my puzzle is, okay, you've got these extensive fields of Murnong in southwest in Victoria. How did people keep the kangaroos off it? If the kangaroos could have got at it, they would have eaten it. They would have eaten it out for sure. So I suspect the way that they did it was to make more attractive uh, food somewhere else. And instead of like us Europeans drive stock, don't they? The word drovers comes from that. Driving stock. I think they lured stock. And it's a word I use quite a bit. They lured the kangaroos away from the uh, crops of of Murnong in this case, and that way they could let the Murnong flourish. But again, I don't exactly know. Nobody's ever uh, spoken or written about that to, to my knowledge, so it's a guess. Talking about Murnong, you can see how it's done in a very small painting just beyond the archway there called Cutting Out the Cattle at Kangatong um, by Eugene uh, Monjara, didn't it? Yeah. He didn't know much about cutting out cattle because there's cows and calves going one way and steers going the other. But, so I don't know exactly what was being cut out, but I suspect it was two mobs that had got boxed or joined together and they had to be separated. But one mob is on yellow ground and the other mob is on green ground. And in between them is a very shallow watercourse which you can see the cattle running back and forth when you have a look. And that's interesting in itself. We have very few shallow watercourses now, don't we? They cut down into the ground as gullies, usually. That watercourse is like that because there are a lot of uh, plants growing which are slowing the water flow, which means water slows, flows very slowly, it spreads out gently, and you've got virtually no indentation on the land. What whitefellas do is graze out all the grasses, uh, clear off uh, some of the scrub, water flows more quickly, uh, and that means the streams cut deeper into the soil and you get those erosion gullies. A good example of that is in uh, Wiradjuri country and the Murrumbidgee. There are, in the lower Murrumbidgee, there are a lot of uh, uh, tributary streams, that is, streams that flow into the Murrumbidgee. That's not remarkable. What is remarkable is that when whitefellas came, they were all distributaries. They all flowed out of the Murrumbidgee, out into the plains. Uh, but when the Murrumbidgee cut deeper, those streams reversed their flow. It's a clear indication of how dramatically our water uh, systems have changed and you can see it in that painting. The yellow, I think, is Murnong. 
It's the only flower I can think of that uh, flourishes to the extent that it does there. And you can see it's a rich field of Murnong, just divided by this gentle stream into a different kind of green grass. Uh, uh, so that whitefellas are not coming on isolated patches or, or anything like that. They're coming across genuine crops, extensive crops that, dis as in this painting, disappear out of our sight. A quite remarkable system and another puzzle. How come they didn't notice? Why couldn't they see it? Why didn't somebody ask? Why is half of that painting green and half of that painting yellow? Von Gerard didn't know, but he depicted what he saw. So, once again, knowing a little bit leads to even greater puzzles and makes clear how little we know about what really went on in 1788 Australia. Um, I'd encourage you all to have a really good look at the... Um, just here, there's the John Wedge book. Um, so John Wedge was one of the first colonists to, sh to show up in what was Port Phillip Bay. Um, and it's opened up on the page, which we think is one of the very few um, images of women collecting Murnong. Um, and that's something that's very, you know, that's a very rare item that we're very, very lucky to have um, here. So I encourage everyone to have a, have a look at that um, and really study the detail of that image because it's an extraordinary image documenting an extraordinary um, industry. Uh, and, and, and really it is that industry, you know, I keep forgetting, but there is this one, you know, and it's great speaking to a group of people, everyone put their hand up for Uncle Bruce, but everyone who knows that Sturt quote, you know, Sturt being saved by those, by that Aboriginal people in Cooper Creek, um, they get fed um, duck and cake, but the quote goes on and he describes that the women all night were grinding. They were grinding all night. Um, there, were, there were sets of them working with their fires, collecting those seeds, grinding it up and making, making those cakes. Um, and he says at 11 o'clock, everything went quiet. Couldn't hear a thing. And that you'd have no idea that you were camping next to a group of 300 to 400 Aboriginal people. Um, but he describes that grinding as like a loom factory. The sound was like a loom factory. That was the level of industry that was happening. Um, just at this one camp, what, what he was describing as a desert <laughs> and what we still describe as a desert, um, there was an industry there, but an industry that's been forgotten. How are we going for time? Sorry, I'm the timekeeper. Oh, Nikki's our timekeeper. Five minutes. Uh, Sturt was rescued by Dieri people. Um, I think it, they ought to be remembered. There's a painting that everyone can see. It's. Uh, uh, at Wanangatta. Again, Von Gerard, as it uh, happens. It's uh, a pretty rough country, as you can see, although not quite as rough as Von Gerard has depicted it. It's, uh, it's a hidden valley as in between his foreground and his background, and it's quite hard to get to, especially if you come from the western side. Uh, 
quite a challenge. But anyway, um, he's cut that out. He's cut out the agricultural part of the, of the painting. But if you look in the center ground, you can see on those ridges, uh, clear areas, stretches of grass along the ridges. There are three different ones. And uh, right in the middle of quite dense uh, forest. So the, the first thing you need to do, and which I and others' friends went with, is to see, is there a natural cause for that? Were there shallow rocks, or was there something that uh, caused that only to be grass and the trees couldn't grow there? But no, it's now a very thick forest. We, we stood pretty well where Von Gerard stood. Uh, he's had exaggerated the skyline, but that central area is exactly as he depicted it and it's now a very dense forest. So clearly they were cleared by Aboriginal people and their purpose there I think is for game. They're two smaller areas for Murnong, that would have been down on the flat on the richer soil, similarly with the kangaroo grass, but up there he'd be, Aboriginal people would be burning mountain grasses uh, to create places to lure uh, kangaroos or wallabies probably in this case and then because of their long narrow shape and the gully between them you could hunt them quite easily. In, in effect you get the kangaroos there then hunt them. That's a kind of husbandry, a kind of farming isn't it? That's more or less what we do with cattle. We gather them up and then cut out a few that's what they do, cut out a few kangaroos and there's your tucker, handy and convenient because you've made the places so you know where the kangaroos are going to grow. Go. Thanks. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what people like Uncle um, Bill Allen from Bathurst you know, describes country as um, open paddocks, fenceless paddocks um, that people were able to manage and control. Um, I guess it would be just a really good thing to end, um, just to sort of comment on the one thing that made, I think, me very happy to know, and I think we need to acknowledge, um, I, this project in many ways is obviously thinking about fire, thinking about country, thinking about the plants. Um, but of course, I really see this as a complementary work to Uncle Badger's work downstairs. Um, the country, water story, the plant story, the animal stories, those are all together. Um, and how we as a country move forward to protect this one thing that keeps us all alive and keeps us all here um, is, is just so important. Um, and the, you know, one of the most important things as Aboriginal people we have to offer now is you know, our knowledge about how to keep us all alive. Um, and we've gone through the history books, we've seen this, but the one thing that also is in those history books is that Aboriginal people have constantly been there saying, here's some knowledge. If you need some help, ask us. We're here, we want to teach you. We want to tell you these stories. Please listen to us. That has never changed. You see that from day one. And we're still here saying the same thing. We're here. Just listen to these stories, take this knowledge and make a better place for all of us. Um, and I think that's a really important message for us all. So thanks. Let's tell them about Meg.
I just want to let you know that this exhibition has a sister exhibition, which is at the Museum of Economic Botany in the Botanic Gardens of Adelaide, just straight down North Terrace. Jonathan has created another body of work which speaks to this exhibition, and the launch for that is at 4pm. Everybody is welcome. And please come back and spend time looking at all of these texts because there's so much information written on the walls that helps you to gain a deeper insight. I've been into this space at least 15 times and every time I come, I'm learning something else. So please, let's just say thanks again. <laughs>